Let's take our Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 2 together. Matthew chapter 2. That'll give us something to talk about later. (laughs) These are familiar words to us, especially at Christmas time. Matthew has just described the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. I read that text a little bit earlier. And now he is going to tell about a special visit to the Holy Family. And he continues in chapters 2 by saying, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is evidence that the star did not initially lead uh, to Bethlehem, but the star was more likely a sign in the heavens that rose, that signaled the birth of a Jewish king. So these wise men, the, the, the magi, the magi, as we say in the, in the Greek text, that's what it is. They came to welcome him. And so they journeyed to the place where they, expect, they would expect a Jewish king to be born, the capital, Jerusalem. It was the city of the, the, the capital city of the commonwealth of Judea where the Jews were living under Roman control. So verse 3 said, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled because he was a power-hungry, murderous dictator who was violently OCD about protecting his throne. And if you've read anything about Herod, you know that that's true. There was a saying when he was alive that it was better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son because he would murder anybody, even his own family members, if they thought he was a, they were a threat to his throne. And so it says, all Jerusalem was troubled with him because when Herod got angry, people would always die. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And if anyone would know the answer to this question, where a ruler of the Jews was to be born, the chief priests and scribes would know. They were the experts when it came to the Jewish scriptures. And naturally, they knew what to say. In verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So in the rest of the text, Herod informs these wise men that Bethlehem is the town they are looking for, and the wise men find baby Jesus somewhere in Bethlehem, and they worship him. Now, there's something peculiar that's always struck me about this story. It's the fact that these unique foreign dignitaries show up to welcome a newborn king that no one seems to know about. And there are prophecies about the coming of such a child. And yet no one except these wise men bothers searching for him. We can understand Herod's reaction, but you would think that the chief priest and scribe, the religious leaders, would at least want to verify the story. Yet they come off as uninterested. 
They answer the question about the location of future ruler's birth, and then they go back to whatever else they were doing that seemed to be more important to them. In fact, the way they use the scripture to answer the question is very utilitarian. They are quoting from the prophecy of Micah, which we're going to look at in a few moments, what we we now call the beginning of Micah chapter 5. And they pull from the text of Micah two pieces of information that they need to answer the single question. Where is the location of the newborn king of the Jews? So they quote the information from the text that is needed. The first two lines show the place, a little town of Bethlehem. And the second two lines show the person who is is to be born there, the ruler or the king. And we know that he's a king because later in the text of Micah, it says that he will shepherd his people. And the kings of the house of David were always referred to as, as shepherds of the people. So there you have it. That's where he's to be born. End of story. And yet there is so much more that Micah says about this coming king and his significance. And that's why I say that the priests and scribes come off as less than enthralled about the possibility that Messiah has arrived. They seem underwhelmed. Some of you musicians are aware of the famous social experiment that was conducted by the Washington Post in a subway station in Washington, D.C. back in 2007. They placed a violinist in the station in a hallway where hundreds of people would be passing by during rush hour, and they waited to see people's reactions as he played an amazing litany of pieces. Most people passed by without looking up. Some dropped money in his violin case, but they kept on walking. They didn't stop. Some stood and watched for a few seconds or so, and then they hurried on their way. Sometimes children would pull their parents over because they wanted to see, and the parents would oblige them for a few seconds, and then they'd pull the boy saying, we got to get going. We can't stay. We can't listen to this. And the point is, nobody really gave the violinist much attention. But many of them would have stopped and stared and listened long and applauded and even stayed around to get an autograph if they would have known that the violinist in the station that day was the internationally acclaimed virtuoso Joshua Bell, wearing a baseball cap and playing his $3.5 million Stradivarius. Joshua Bell had just played to a sold-out concert in D.C. where the nosebleed section tickets went for $100 apiece. Now, before this experiment, the Washington Post interviewed American conductor Leonard uh, Slatkin and asked him what he predicted would happen if they did this experiment with Joshua Bell. And Leonard Slatkin said he thought that if a thousand people went by, about 30 or 40 people would probably recognize the quality of the violin playing, and they would stop and listen. They'd be very curious. About 75 to 100 would probably stop for a while to listen, and Joshua Bell might make about 150 bucks as people put about, you know, some, some change in his violin case, which Joshua Bell did not need money. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess it was an extra if he would get that. Well, you can go online and watch the video of Joshua Bell playing in the station and see for yourself what actually happened. After the sermon, of course, you can do that. Um, there, were, uh, there were 1,097 people who walked by. But the number of people who actually stopped to listen for any length of time, seven people. 
And Joshua Bell made a little over 50 bucks from about 75 people who threw in change. That included a $20 bill from one person who actually recognized him. <laughs> I don't know why he thought he needed money then, but uh, he, put in, <laughs> he put in 20. Maybe he was trying to impress him or something. But seven people total who stopped. And some of those made to stop by their kids. And here was a renowned virtuoso standing right in front of them. But the vast majority didn't stop. They didn't listen. They didn't pay attention. They were unaware. And that's what I think of when I read this story in Matthew 2 and I see how the priests and the scribes react. The greatest person in world history has just been born into the world. And he was their king. He wasn't even the king of the wise men. He was their king. But the only people who seemed concerned were a group of pagan Gentiles who probably thought that it was a little odd that a king was born into a poor family that nobody else was really paying much attention to. But before we criticize the Jewish religious leaders too harshly, we need to look inwardly and examine ourselves. How much riveted attention do we really give to the greatest person who ever came into the world? The one who died for us, the one who saved us, the one who is coming again. How much attention do we give to the truth concerning him? How much attention do we give to the word that tells us about him? Even during a time set aside to celebrate in the time of Christmas, Christmas, we rush ahead, pausing for a few moments, a service here or there. And it's good that we come together like this and worship him and encourage one another to do so. That, that's why the body gathers. But do we take time to read and reflect, to stand in awe of our Savior? I think that if the priests and scribes would have been devoted to the coming of the Messiah, that their interest would have been captivated that night by the arrival of these wise men. And word would have spread. And more than one group of foreigners would have been searching for the holy family in Bethlehem to gaze upon and worship the king. I think that if they were truly devoted to the significance of the prophecies of his coming, that there would have been far more that they could have said from the prophecy of Micah than simply identify his person and his location. In fact, what I'd like us to do for a few moments this morning is to go to the prophecy of Micah itself and see for ourselves what beautiful music is playing to foretell the coming of the great King, Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to turn in your Bibles or look on your devices, let's begin in Micah chapter 4, Micah 4. And what I'd like to suggest this morning is that when we read the Scripture, we ought to be stopping and staring in amazement and reflecting, and appreciating, and recognizing, and rejoicing that we should not be hurrying on by as if we have something better to do. And the prophecy of Micah is one of those places, one of hundreds of places in the scriptures that allow us to stand and wonder at the greatness of our King, the Lord Jesus. In fact, I'm going to suggest that the prophecy of Micah teaches us to stop and gaze with wonder at the one 
who is coming to reign. We should recognize several qualities of this king in this prophecy. Let's begin reading, though, in Micah chapter 4, verse 1, to get the context. So Micah prophesies around the time of Isaiah, and that means that the nation is already divided. You've got the, the northern tribes of Israel to the north, and that's what's called Israel proper. And you've got the single tribe of Judah, which becomes its own nation when the kingdom splits up. And Micah is addressing the word of the Lord to Judah. And it's around the time of Isaiah And so up until this point in the prophecy, Micah is pronouncing the judgment that is coming against the nation of Judah because of their sin. It is coming, he says. Babylon is going to come and they're going to destroy because you have not turned from your idolatry. But in chapter four, Micah begins to give them hope. One day, he says, God will restore their kingdom to be a glorious kingdom that will bring peace to the entire earth. Let's begin reading in verse 1. He says, And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And mountains in prophecy in particular always represent the governments, and cities would always put their most important people and their most important temples at the, at the Acropolis, the high point of the city. And so it will be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow into it and many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples... Walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, this prophetic day, this coming day, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. We come to verse 9 and the scene changes. With the word now that you see there. Micah brings them back to the present. He's looking at this future kingdom that's going to come. We just read about. Now he brings them back to the present. And in the present, the nation of Judah is experiencing much turmoil because they were in a tiny country in the middle of major empires who had decided that they were going to destroy her. And the kings of Judah were powerless to do anything about it. So God says, now why do you cry aloud? Is there there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city 
and dwell in the open country. And some of them escaped Babylon and they lived in the hills and the caves. And you shall go to Babylon, he says, because many of them were carried away captive. But what shall happen to Babylon? He says, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now, verse 11, many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. And that means gaze upon them to run at them and destroy them. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. And the idea here is that the nations who destroyed Judah are actually being gathered by God to the threshing floor, and they are going to be beat out. And so he says to them, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, which is a military term, meaning there will be strong in battle. I will make your horn iron. I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people. You'll thresh them and shall devote their grain to the Lord their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So, so Judah will be punished by Babylon, but God will rescue her and raise her up and establish her kingdom so that they will be a blessing to the whole earth and his enemies will be conquered. But then we come to chapter five and the reader is again slapped back into this present reality. God calls them to prepare for battle from Babylon whom God is bringing against his own people because of their sin. He says, uh, actually, I don't have this uh, up here. So just listen to what I'm going to say here, okay? Uh, I'm gonna, we're not going to have a, a screen for this one. He says, uh, now muster your troops, or daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And the king is Israel... Uh, the, the, the king in Israel here is called a judge. You notice that? Because he's likely the last king of Judah before Babylon is destroyed in 586. It was Zedekiah. And he was put there by Nebuchadnezzar and the people never considered him the true king. So he was like a judge. And he was under a lot of political pressure from the people to rebel against Babylon. And when he finally gave in, Nebuchadnezzar came for him. And after the city of Jerusalem fell, Zedekiah's sons were slaughtered before his eyes and then Zedekiah's eyes were put out so that the last thing he would see is the destruction of his family. And so to strike the judge or ruler on the cheek is to insult him and his people and to declare that you are mightier than they and they can't do anything about it. This is precisely what Nebuchadnezzar did to Zedekiah. And I think that's what's being reflected in verse 1 of Micah chapter 5. So the nation of Judah will be taken down, her king will be humiliated, and there's nothing they can do to stop this judgment. And it is at this point in the prophecy that Micah says, but, however, yet, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. 
And here the prophet prophesies of the rise of a great king from an obscure place. And then he continues in verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. In other words, God is going to discipline his people. They are not going to be a mighty nation. They are no longer going to be prominent until... That time when she who is in labor has given birth, then things will change. It's obvious that the birth refers to the birth of this ruler in verse 2. And isn't this fascinating? Why couldn't Micah have simply said, until he is born? Why does he refer to she who is in labor giving birth? I think it's because it's a reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And when this child is born from this mother, the situation for Israel will change. This ruler will gather his brothers back into the land and be their king. And verse 4 says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And the beginning of the verse 5 says, and he shall be their peace. Now, there's something we have to understand about Old Testament prophecy. So often the prophets see events in the future. Events of judgment, events of great blessing. But it is difficult often from their perspective to sort out the timing of these events. Old Testament prophecy has often been compared to a mountain range from a distance. When you're looking at the range from a long way off, it's difficult to be able to tell that there's actually several peaks lined up in a row. It's like one great mountain as you're looking at it. But if you were to look down on them, like you can do in the Blue Ridge Mountains, you discover that there are actually several peaks stretching in the distance with gaps between them. That's like Old Testament prophecy. There are mountains of events with time gaps in between them. And it is difficult sometimes to sort out when the events will happen. But it seems to be here that the nation will be judged by Babylon and carried off to a far land. They will lose their former glory. But when a particular ruler is born, he will gather the scattered people together and establish the kingdom and rule over them in peace. Babylon did conquer the nation of Judah, and the nation never has recovered its former glory. But a king was indeed born. And now we are waiting for that time when he will return, the the gap between the mountains the time when he would return to gather his brothers together and establish his kingdom when he comes in his second coming. Now, I want to focus for a few moments on this text. I want to see the wonderful qualities of this king that we can discern, that we need to stop and look at and gaze at. I'm actually going to go through them pretty quickly this morning. But I want it to be a reminder to us an example to us of what we can discern as we read and study and look at carefully the Word of God. What do we need to recognize and gaze on and stand in wonder at? I think there are several of these wonderful qualities. I'm only going to mention four uh, this morning. So the first one is His sovereignty. 
his sovereignty. We see this wonderful quality in several ways. First, the fact that the Lord himself tells us hundreds of years in advance the exact location of his birth. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, we're not even a hundred percent certain what Ephrathah even means. It may refer to the larger region in which Bethlehem was located, or it might refer to a particular clan that the town was known for. We're not a hundred percent sure. The very fact that we're not certain what Ephrathah really means points to the town's obscurity. And yet the Savior was born there. Mary and Joseph were not planning to make a trip to Bethlehem. Mary was great with child. You don't take a long ride on a donkey from Nazareth in the region of Galilee to a town close to Jerusalem when you're that far along in your pregnancy. They won't even let you fly in a plane when they're that close to your due date. But God knew way in advance because of his sovereignty, his loving control over the events of the world and over the events in our own lives. He knew where Mary and Joseph would be that night. God himself is speaking in this verse. Do you see that? From you shall come forth for me, God says, through the prophet. He is predicting his own birth by means of the second person of the Godhead, God the Son. The Lord can say where something will happen, what will happen, at what time it will happen. It's one of his wonderful qualities that should cause us to stop and reflect and worship him and be comforted. We don't know what 2023 is going to bring. But one thing we can be certain of, and that is that our sovereign Lord will continue to guide all events so that all of his promises come to pass both in the world and in our lives. Only the strength and grace of the Lord can do that because he is sovereign. Not only do we marvel at his sovereignty, but we also stand in awe of his humility, breathtaking humility. I read about it a little bit earlier in Philippians chapter 2. From the beginning, the Lord planned to arrive in a tiny town of no real consequence. A little farming community with barley fields. Beit Lechem, that's Hebrew. It's the house of bread, the house of food. Not a great palace, not a capital city, but someplace obscure. That's why the Christmas carol we sang earlier says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, as Brother Chuck mentioned. It wasn't a loud and proud worldwide proclamation that night. It will be one day, but not on that night. It was someplace quiet, humble, out of the way. And even then, the birth took place in a stable. But there's another aspect to his humility that you might miss if you're not looking for it in verse 4. When he reigns on the earth, this king in verse 4, if you'll notice, will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, literally in the strength of Yahweh or Jehovah. When Jesus came to be our Savior, he submitted himself to the will of the Father and was led and spoke and ministered through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
That's the way Jesus is presented in the Gospels. He hungered and thirsted like we do. He felt pain like we do. He prayed and depended on the Father because of this, like we need to. And when he returns to establish his kingdom to rule as the prophecy of Micah prophesies that he will, he will still function as one who is dependent upon the Father. You think of the glory and majesty and strength of Jesus Christ that we have beheld in studying the book of Revelation. You would think that Jesus would say at some point, okay, I've got this now. I'll take the lead now. But no, he continues to model humility even in his future reign. That's breathtaking humility, especially for those of us who struggle hard with submission. We struggle to behave the right way with honor and respect to our human authorities. And worst of all, we struggle at times to truly submit ourselves to the will of God. We don't put his will first. We make decisions without his perfect will in mind. So we need to gaze with wonder on the humility of our Lord and Savior and imitate his submission to the will of God. It should cause us to marvel that the one person in all the universe who Colossians 1 says created the universe, the one person who would appear does not need to show humility is the very person who shows us best what it means to submit to God, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the cost. Looking carefully at the text, we may also discern the wonderful quality of the newborn's king's deity, his deity. And I'll show you where. It's once again here in verse 2. This is a marvelous phrase. God says, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, literally from days of eternity, or as some interpret it, from eternity on. In other words, when this little child is born, he has already existed. It reminds us what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8. Jesus told them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's a claim to deity. There are some who will say, Jesus never said he was God. Well, you need to tell the Jews that because as soon as he would say things like this, they would start looking around for stones to stone him because he had committed blasphemy because he made himself God. Because he said something that only God could claim about himself. For one of the qualities of deity is eternity, eternality. We get nostalgic about the baby in the manger, but that child is God in human flesh. He is the ancient of days, before the world even existed, before the fall made it necessary for a Savior to come into the world. That Savior was already in existence and it should cause us to wonder. It should cause us to worship him. We cannot just go on our merry way when we are confronted with such a truth because we are completely finite ourselves. 
our very existence itself depends upon this Christ. He is the only being in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who existed and exists and will exist, that is not dependent upon anything else for its existence. Before ever anything was, He is. And He chose to confine Himself to time and space in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that He was willing to do that leads us to a final wonderful quality that I think we can see in this text that should cause us to worship our Lord and to give attention to Him, and namely, His charity. His charity. I love this word because it embodies the ideas of affection, compassion, love, generosity, goodness, grace, mercy, kindness, tenderheartedness. And we get a glimpse of this kind of charity in the way he rules as king, as the omnipotent creator of the universe. He could rule with absolute power and set himself up so that his subjects always come cringing before him. But that's not what the text says. Verse 4 says that he shall stand and shepherd his flock. And we know what the Lord's shepherding ministry is like because we've seen him in action in Psalm 23. Where the Lord leads his people like sheep, he causes them to lie down, to feed abundantly, and to allow them to drink from life-giving waters. He cares for them because he loves them. That's why the verse continues, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace, their shalom. That's the Hebrew word. Most of you know that. And you also know probably that it doesn't merely mean stop fighting, you know. Shalom, agreeing to disagree, just getting along, calling a ceasefire. That's not what shalom means. That's not true peace. Shalom is wholeness of well-being. It means that every area in my life that I could worry about is under the loving guidance and control of the shepherd. It means that when I look at my life, I see that everything is right as I'm following the will of God. You know why it's right? Because the, the, the most important thing is right. If I know Jesus Christ, if I've, if I've trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I am right with God. And I can come before him freely. And I will be with him someday. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He comes to bring us peace. And he comes to bring us this peace before God. To lead us to a place where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more crying or pain or sadness anymore. And he reminds us that he shepherds us in this way when we follow him and submit to him and he pours out the blessings of peace upon us. Only our Lord can do that because he is a Lord of charity. Sovereignty, humility, deity, charity. And the list can go on and on. If only we will stop hurrying on with our lives and take some time to gaze intently upon him. It's probably the best Christmas gift we can give ourselves. Time to think. Time to read. 
time to reflect on our Lord and Savior, time to wonder, time to stand in awe. It's been observed that children learn to love what those who love them love. And it's one of the ways that God created us to grow and learn. But this is also true of our relationship with Christ who loves us. When we focus on the wonderful qualities of our Lord, we not only learn to love him more, we learn to love what he loves. So let's learn to gaze on him. I trust today that you will have a wonderful Christmas with your families and your friends. But let's also pray that we, through yielding to the Spirit in our lives, would learn the grace of standing in awe of him for his glory. Father, thank you.